0: This morning is found in Genesis chapter 3. Um, but I'm just going to read uh, the first verse, or I'm sorry, the last verse of 25, and then we will go through Genesis 3 as we move throughout. So Genesis 2 25 reads, And the man and his wife were both naked. And we're not ashamed. Father, we thank you for gathering us together today to hear from you. Pray that during this time of instruction that we would do just that, God, that you would help me to get out of the way as um, I'm preaching, and for you to have your most holy way, so that we might learn from you, be taught by you here today. Illumine our minds and our hearts, so that we can understand the truths contained here. In your word, for it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So today we begin our fourth installment in a sermon series that we have entitled Ancestry.div. That is, Ancestry.divine. And what we are doing is we are looking at the story of our family history from the beginning of pages, uh, from the beginning of the pages of Scripture until the very end. And that is, we are looking at who we are, uh, where we came from, where we're going, and what we're supposed to be doing in the world. And we're tracing that story from Genesis to Revel- uh, Revelation. And today, we come to one of the most fundamental passages of Scripture in the Bible. That is Genesis chapter 3. And here, we see that there is a turn that takes place in God's program. And if everything before was puppy dogs and flowers, today we are going to run into jagged rocks and dragons. Um, Today we see that there are patterns set by our original parents that changed the uh, trajectory of the rest of human history forever. So today we look at the failure and sin of our first parents. And in order to understand the sin of our first parents, we must first understand the situation under which they were living in the garden. In the Garden of Eden, there were two trees, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and the tree of life. And in the beginning, when God created Adam and Eve, He told them that they would have all the trees for food. That is, that they would be able to eat from all of them. Genesis 1, 29 reads, And God said, Behold... I've given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. But in chapter 2, we see that there is a certain prohibition placed on a certain tree in the garden. So which is it? They're going to be able to eat from all of the trees or just some? Well, I think the answer is found in this statement about Adam and Eve being naked and unashamed. What does it mean for them to be naked? Um would they always be naked? Would they one day be clothed? Is it is it a good thing uh to be clothed? Um is it is it like inherently evil to be clothed or something like this? Um were, were Adam and Eve more pure because they were unclothed? I think clothing's a good thing. In the scripture, we find that even God himself is clothed. He is wrapped in a garment of light. And if we are created in the image of God, then don't you think that we should have some clothes as well? Well, I would posit that Adam and Eve would one day be clothed when they reached an age of maturity. You have to understand that in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve are created in a state of of innocence and immaturity. Um, That is, uh, they were um, still babies. You know, babies, they're born naked, right? And they have no clothing yet. So they were to grow, and they were to be clothed. They were to grow in stages of maturity, at which point they would attain new levels of investiture. That is, they would be clothed, and they would be further clothed eventually. Um, And throughout Scripture, we see that men are clothed with different robes to signify office and authority. For instance, Noah's sons, they clothe him with his robe, his two obedient sons. When he's found naked, they put his robe back on him, which is his robe of authority over the new world after the flood. If you think of the story of Joseph, he has three different robes that he wears throughout his life. Uh, the first robe is the coat of multicolors that his father gives him. Later on, he has a different robe given to him when he's in Potiphar's house. And then finally, when he's set over the whole world, he has another robe in Pharaoh's house that he wears. And these all signify the different levels of authority that Joseph held throughout his life, in his father's house, over the jail and the prison, and then eventually over the world. And even the Lord Jesus Christ himself wears a robe. He wears a robe that has a, it's a seamless garment, right? The soldiers gamble for it at the cross. And that robe signified his authority. The soldiers are essentially trying to tear Christ's authority away from him. And even when Christ returns, he's wearing a robe, and the saints, they return with him, and they're all wearing robes that signify their righteous deeds and their ability to judge with Jesus Christ when he comes. And we understand this idea of robes investing people with authority and power because we see it all the time in our societies. For instance, if, if somebody were to walk in here right now wearing a blue suit and a badge on their chest, they had a gun on their hip and handcuffs at their back, what would we be looking at? Police officer, right? We know that that's an officer who's been invested with authority to um, um, bring people to justice according to the laws of our land. Uh, if we run into somebody in the store or walking on the street who has a white collar around their neck, we know that they are what? An officer of the church, right? They've been invested with authority and power by the church and by Jesus Christ. Or if we were to look outside right now and see you know, a guy running around in a brown suit, driving a brown truck and delivering brown packages to our doors, we would know that that is what? A UPS worker, right? And that he has been given authority to deliver our packages to us. So we understand this idea of authority, this idea of clothing and its and it, and it signifying um, authority. Uh, and Adam and Eve are naked and ashamed and unashamed. Um, and that is to say they are created in a state of innocence and immaturity. And they are to grow in levels of maturity through obedience to the commandments of God. They are to patiently endure... Listening to what God has told them to do, and they too uh, would one day grow and be invested with authority, but not before they were able to bear it. And that is the very thing that the, temp- uh, the, the tempter, the serpent, tempts them with to take authority, to seize authority to themselves before the time, to seize the Godlike prerogative of discerning between good and evil. Uh, look back. At Genesis 3 with me in verses 1 through 7, we see that. In verse 1 we read, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. So what does it mean to know the difference between good and evil? Does this just mean that Adam, all of a sudden, now that their eyes are open, they know the difference between what is right and what is wrong? No, Adam and Eve are created innocent um, and upright in the sight of God. They're moral beings. As a matter of fact, Paul tells us that Adam was not deceived when he ate from the fruit, but he ate with eyes wide open, knowing that he was breaking the commandment of God. So they know the difference between right and wrong. So what does it mean for them to discern the difference between good and evil? Well, to discern the difference between good and evil in this instance means to determine what is good and what is evil, to judge what is good and what is evil, which is a God-like prerogative. Uh, God is the one who sets the standard for what is good, and for what is right, and what is just. And to determine what is good, and what is evil, is to be godlike. And that is the temptation that Lucifer, the devil, the serpent here tempts them with—to go and to seize the godlike prerogative of discerning between good and evil before the time. He says, "You won't die. Go ahead. Just just take it now. You can have it right now. You don't have to wait." till you become mature, which is exactly what happens. The scripture says their eyes were opened and they knew that they were naked. They discerned between good and evil. This is to say that they realized that they were inadequate for the task. They didn't have any clothes on. They didn't have authority to do this. They didn't have any wisdom. They had knowledge now that they'd eaten from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, but they had no backlog of experience to use that knowledge, which is what wisdom is, right? You take your past experiences and you couple together those experiences with what you know now and apply it to your current situation so you can make a right decision about things. And Adam and Eve were not ready to do this yet. They're still babies. They're still immature and inexperienced. Now, they would one day be able to eat from all the trees as God had said, but a process of maturing needed to take place first. And we know that this prohibition would one day be lifted because this prerogative is later on given back to men during the times of kings. Uh, David is said to be like an angel of God, being able to discern between good and evil. And, And Solomon, during his kingship, he is given He prays for the ability to discern between good and evil, and he's given it immediately. And then you might remember that you have the story of the two harlots that come to him, and he has to discern between good and evil. The people are amazed at his wisdom, how he's able to decide in this matter. God gives it back to men. But this would not happen until later on in the history of Israel. Right now, the people of God are in a stage of infancy. They are still babies. They are to grow. They are to come become mature. They're to obey, and they're to do this by obeying God patiently and faithfully. The, the Proverbs says that it's the glory of God to conceal a matter, but it's the glory of kings to search it out. It's the prerogative of God and of kings to discern good and evil. And Adam and Eve take this right to themselves before the time. They're still babies. And isn't this what we do all the time? We, we like to sit ourselves in the seat of God, don't we? like to make ourselves into little gods. Um, God has given us a standard, a law by which we are to live our lives, and we will have none of it. We always think that we know better than God, right? We want to create our own standards and our own laws according to what feels best to us at the time. And it's our power for lust. And uh, it's our lust for power and satisfaction that causes us to do this. We make our own laws, our own standards of morality, and interestingly enough, they always fly right in the face of what God has said to do. Right? Isn't it like? Isn't it interesting that we always want to do the exact opposite of what God has told us to do when we make our own laws up? And why is that? Well, because we're like Adam and Eve. We think He's hiding something from us. We listen to the tempter, the serpent, and says, "God's hiding something from you." He's trying to keep all the goodies to himself. You can take it. You can have it now. Go ahead. And uh, that is the temptation that they fall victim to, and it is the same temptation that we fall victim to over and over again because we want to have fun, right? We We think God is trying to keep us from having all the fun, and sin is fun, right? And that's why we want to do it. And it's fun, but only for a time until we reap the consequences. No, God has put his law in place as a governor to keep us in check, to keep us in our proper place so that we don't go getting ourselves into a situation that we have no business being in. He's put this in as a safeguard because he loves us. It's kind of like a guardrail to keep us from going off of the road. God's law is holy. It's it's good. It's designed to teach us and to guide us and ground us so that we might become mature, and enjoy the fullness of the blessings that this life has to offer. But man says, no, (laughs) you get down off that throne, God. I I am going to be God. I will determine uh, what is good and what is right for myself. And this is the original sin. It is the the sin of our first parents, and it's the sin that we still commit today. It's the pride of knowing, uh, of thinking that we know better than God. Right, that we can determine what is good and what is right for ourselves. It's the sin we commit day after day as we refuse to submit to God and patiently, faithfully obey His will for our lives. Uh, look with me now in verse 7. See what happens. Uh, verse 7, Then the eyes of both were opened, All the days of your life, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing in pain. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. And to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten They try to conceal their nakedness by covering themselves. They they were not ready uh, to, to wear the robes of, of kings or even judges, for that matter. They were still just babies. And they were naked and unashamed. And God basically comes to them and says, you want the right to judge between good and evil? Go ahead and do it. He gives them the opportunity right there. He says, you want to dress like men and women? Act like men and women. Discern between good and evil. Tell me what you have done. And God begins to question them about what they have done. And instead of acknowledging their sin before God and saying, you know, we reached out and we took fruit from the tree that you told us not to do, confessing their sins to God, they blame shift. Adam blames it on God. I don't know if you picked up on that. He says, the woman you gave to me. (laughs) The woman you gave to me. So he blames it on the woman and God. And, uh, And then Eve blames it on the serpent and God condemns the whole lot. The, the serpent, he pronounces judgment on the serpent, on the woman, and on the man. But uh, in, his, in his condemnation, there is a glimmer of hope. We see a promise there in verse 15. But it's interesting, just think about this for a moment, that this is what we do today still, right? At every time God calls us to account for our sins or somebody else, what do we want to do? We want to blame shift. We want to point the finger at somebody else or something. And it is ingrained in the fabric of our being to do this because of what happened here in the garden. And we're supposed to learn from that. We're supposed to realize, okay, when we're called to account, we know that we have done wrong in the eyes of God. Confess our sin, but we don't. We continue to blame shift today, point the finger at other people. It's the old sin of Adam and Eve. But in all this condemnation, there is a promise and a glimmer of hope In in verse 15, we have the gospel in seed form. If you look back at verse 15, he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. God condemns the serpent to crawl on his belly uh, for the rest of his life, but more than that, he puts perpetual enmity between him and the woman. So that there's, there's this war and this, hostil- this hostility between the serpent and the woman. Now, who is the woman in this instance? Uh, first of all, it would be Eve, who is the mother of the human race, from which the people of God would eventually come, which is the seed of the woman. The children that come from the woman. Um, so the woman is Eve and her seed, and who is the serpent? The serpent is, uh, we know from other passages of Scripture, including the one we read this morning, that it is none other than the devil, uh, the dragon, that old serpent of old, um, an angel of God who did not keep his proper place. And at this point in time, it was the job of angels to come alongside men and help them learn and discern the will of God for their lives. But, Lucifer, the devil, abandoned that cause in his conversation with Eve and decided to deceive her instead. And so the old world, and and when Adam essentially uh, bites into the fruit, he concedes to the angel and basically submits his authority to him. And the old world is placed under the authority of angels. So when we read now that there is this enmity or hostility between the seed of the serpent and between the uh, seed of the woman, it makes sense. There's this constant warring that takes place throughout human history between the devil and the people of God, between the devil's seed or those who follow him uh, and the people of God, those who follow God. Um, And we see this over and over again. Pagan believers under the guise of the devil throughout the rest of the Bible are at war with God and his church seeking to destroy it and to stuff it out. And over and over again, you'll see the people of God um, at war with the devil and uh, his seed, and God is continually putting them underfoot. God is continually giving his people victory over uh, the enemy throughout Scripture and advancing his program in the world. And the final blow takes place during the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ when he puts this enmity uh, between the woman and the serpent to bed once and for all. When this promise was first given, Eve might have thought that it was referring to who? Well, her seed, her first son, Cain, but he ended up being a murderer, and he killed his brother Abel, who was a righteous man, and so then the promise falls to Seth, and then throughout the rest of human history, you see that God continues to raise up his people, uh, to conquer, uh, and over and over again uh, the enemy is dealt a blow and uh, the uh, gospel progresses, the kingdom program progresses in the world. But finally, Paul tells us that this promise here of the seed is referring to Christ all along. Uh, the word seed here in uh the scripture could be used for a plurality of people or for one individual. It's kind of like our word deer. When we say there's a bunch of deer out there, we could be referring to a bunch of deer, or we could say there's a deer out there, it could be one deer that we are referring to. And it's the same here. The seed is referring to the people of God and ultimately uh, the man of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, who would come and put this enmity to rest once and for all. Um. On the cross, the devil bruises the head of the promised seed, Jesus Christ. He stirs up that wicked generation and their religious leaders to put him to death. And while they're, while he's being put to death on the cross, his heel is being bruised, but little do they know he is crushing their head at the same time. The cross is the definitive blow to the head of Satan. It is a mortal wound that leaves him crushed and incapacitated. Incapacitated, not dead because he still lurks about, but he's been struck with a mortal blow through the cross, and he will one day die once and for all. But this work has begun. And it's interesting, if you think of the place where Jesus was crucified, in the scripture it's called Golgotha. That is the place of the skull. So if you were to look at the pavement where the crosses were stuck, from an aerial view, it would look like a skull. So it's, it's as if on Calvary, Jesus Christ is driving a stake directly into the head of Satan through the foot of his cross. And what he does there is reverses what took place here in the garden. It's an undoing of what Adam had done. Finally, in verses 20 through 24, um, He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. So first God uh, clothes them with animal skins here. God in his grace decides to clothe Adam and Eve anyway. Uh, They sought the clothing of office and maturity anyway, but God in his grace decides not to take it away from them uh, completely, but to give it to them. But now it would be attained only through blood shedding. Here we see the first animal sacrifice in Scripture. And it's possible that God took these animals, where he got the skins for Adam and Eve to wear, and slaughtered them right in front of Adam and Eve, as if to teach them an object lesson. To say to them, this should have been you. You disobeyed me. You sought to take matters into your own hands. You should have died here today but now I am putting this animal in your place as a substitute. And now, from now now on, throughout the rest of human history, man will approach God by way of blood. Uh, There's no way to get around it. The wages of sin is death, and so somebody must die. God is a just God, and he will not allow our sin to go unpunished. He must punish sin, so somebody's got to die. It's either you or somebody else. And from this point, man would now be required, as we read, to labor under the burden of sin and death. He would live all his days under the afflictions of, <clears throat> of death and of sin. A man would now learn obedience through the things that he suffered in this world and through patiently enduring trials and trusting God and his commandments, he would one day be robed again with the office of authority. So that's first. God decides to clothe the man anyway. Second, so that the man does not live forever in a state of immaturity, he is cast out of the garden and a cherubim is put in his place to guard it. So angels are now going to guard the sanctuary of God. And We've talked about this. Adam and Eve were to rule over the uh, original creation of God. They were to multiply, subdue, and take dominion over it. And they were to guard and keep the garden. But here... In the garden, they show that they were unfit for this task because when the serpent comes in, they don't kick him out. Uh, They submit to him, essentially. Uh, Adam, whenever he saw the serpent coming into the garden, since he was right there, says that Eve gave to her husband who was with her. So he's right there while this is all going on, while he's having this conversation with his wife seeking to deceive her. Should have stomped him out. He should have stomped the devil out right there and would have been done, but he doesn't. He passively submits and relinquishes his authority over to this angel. As a result, the old world was placed under the authority of angels, and we'll see that as we go throughout uh, the rest of our study. So Adam was essentially the original guardian cherub here in the garden, but now another is put in his place. Third and finally we are told that they are cast out because they now have the knowledge of good and evil and may stretch out their hand and eat from the tree of life. Unless they lose access to the garden sanctuary, they will continue on living forever in this state of sin and immaturity, so they have to be cast out. That is, they have to be cut off. And that is what it means when God said that they would die if they ate from the tree. To be cut off from the presence of God is to die, essentially. If you do not have access to God and the life that he gives, you die. So it's a covenantal death that takes place. They are cut off from God and they are cast out into the world so that they cannot no longer eat from the tree of life, which teaches us some things about these trees, uh, the tree of of life and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. What does it teach us? Well, it teaches us that they were mediators. Um, The trees were means through which... God, specifically the tree of life, was a means through which God mediated life to Adam and Eve. The life was not in the tree itself, but God was behind the tree giving life to Adam and Eve through it. And so if you cut them off from the tree, you cut them off from life. And it's interesting, if you go to the... You don't have to do it now, but later on, if you go to the last chapter in your Bible, this tree appears again. The very last chapter in the story, the very last pages of the book, you see the tree appear again and it is in uh, the garden, or it's in the new temple of God, um, which is inside the heavenly city. And everybody who's, who is, uh, has access to that city once again has access to this tree of life. And friends, in Jesus Christ, you and I have once again been given access to the tree of life. He is the source of life behind the tree. And moreover, Paul tells us that in Christ are hidden all the... Wi- uh, The treasures of wisdom and knowledge shall, friends, in Jesus Christ, you once again have been given the ability to discern between what is good and what is evil. Jesus Christ has come. He has conquered all of our enemies. Sin, Satan, and death, he has put them underfoot. And it is through his suffering and his obedience, his patient, faithful obedience to the Father and his his sacrificial blood-shedding on the cross of Calvary, that he has been clothed with authority. He has been clothed with the robes of authority over heaven and earth. All authority and all power has been given to Jesus Christ, and it is in him, friends, that God has given this authority back to man. In the Scripture, we read that Jesus Christ is the second Adam. He does what Adam should have done. He is the obedient and faithful man. He snuffs out the serpent. Uh, Jesus is at work in the world to bring all things into subjection to God as Adam and Eve should have done. God has taken that authority back away from angels and given it to man and Jesus Christ. He's once again made us guardians of the sanctuary. So what does this tell us? Well, that God has not given up on his original plan to subdue the earth through a man. It continues to Today, in us, as we labor together with Jesus Christ as his hands and feet in the world to subdue and to exercise authority by discipling the nations, teaching them to obey all that he taught us. This is the will of God for our lives, friends.